It's the Mark Stein Show. Christmas. One year ago, December 18th, 2019, as China was releasing its respiratory gift to the world out of Wuhan International Airport, uh, the United States House of Representatives voted to impeach Donald Trump and the world's most lavishly overfunded ruling class spent the next two months talking about a Ukrainian telephone call. Speaking of Ukraine, and the first Ukrainian oligarchs to occupy the White House, we have a tweet of the day from Vanity Fair. Quote, Hunter Biden isn't letting the Department of Justice ruin his life. The one thing I have left is my art. Unquote. Hunter isn't just a crack Ukrainian oligarch, he's also a great artist. And the prestigious Georges Bersch Gallery in Manhattan will be presenting a solo exhibition of Hunter's art in the new year. Uh, what kind of things does he do? Uh, nude with crack pipe? Pastoral landscape littered with crack pipes? The monarch of the Glen with a crack pipe wedged in his left antler? Still life of a bowl of fruit with a crack pipe beeping out from behind an orange. Madonna and crack pipe or a touch of uh, surrealism. Ceci n'est pas une crack pipe. No, quote, the venture capitalist turned artist whose studio is in the pool house of his Hollywood Hills home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the pool house of his Hollywood Hills home. Uh, the venture capitalist turned artist. Uh, the venture capitalist, I'd like to say that again. The venture capitalist turned artist whose studio is in the pool house of his Hollywood Hills home creates his work with a metal straw he uses to blow alcohol ink onto Japanese Yupo paper, creating abstract layers of colours and concentric circles. Aha. Uh -huh. So he huffs alcohol ink and then sprays it in concentric circles onto some kind of Japanese paper. I'll take uh, half a dozen at four million apiece. I've been saying for months that if Hunter's corrupt dad, the big guy, the one seriously compromised by China, uh, makes it to the Oval Office, things are going to get real bad real fast on the free speech front. I thought they'd wait until January the 20th, keep the healing talk, the unity shtick uh, going a little while longer. Uh, but no, this was me uh, back last summer. We're now moving to the next level, where cancelled is literal. The monopolies and cartels of modern life are determining who gets to do business, who gets to make a living, who gets to eat. A few years back, I mentioned on Tucker's show one of the first instances of this with vdare.com. Vdare is uh, Peter Brimelow's anti-immigration website. Not just illegal immigration, but the legal type, resulting from what Peter and his chums regard as the disastrous 1965 Immigration Act. I happen to agree with them on that, but a lot of people don't, 
And that's fair enough. Make your case. Stand your ground. Launch your own website. Ooh, no, 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 no. That's far too much effort. It'd be much easier for me to get you closed down. So a week ago, VDare.com launched its annual Christmas fundraiser. And almost as soon as they did so, they got an email from their merchant processor saying their account would be cancelled for some, quote, violations of its service agreement that it did not specify. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, uh, in 48 hours' time, uh, VDare would be unable uh, to take credit card payments. That's... Uh, that would be Sunday, December 13th. And they got the news on Friday, December the 11th. Uh, if you don't know what a merchant processor is, don't feel bad, because unless you take credit card payments, you don't need one. The layman thinks if you accept Visa or MasterCard or American Express, you have some sort of arrangement with those guys directly, and the money goes from Visa straight into your bank account. Not at all. To get your hands on the credit card money, you need to have a payment processor that settles each card transaction and then transfers the 1995 or whatever into your bank. It's like so much of modern life. It's a bit of a pain to set up, but then you never give it another thought. There aren't a lot of these processors out there. There's been a lot of consolidation, and a lot of them are now thoroughly woke, which means we have ideologically committed merchant processors, just as we have ideologically committed shoe brands and coffee chains. And uh, so they decided to destroy VDare.com. Uh, now, VDA's Peter Brimelow did the right thing. He lawyered up and sent a strong legal pushback. That's all you can do. They don't want any chit-chat with you. They think you're a loser. They can crush like a bug. And the only thing that will give them pause is a legal threat from a real lawyer. And so the gutless fairies at the merchant processor have fallen silent. And for the moment, donations are still going through. And VDare is monitoring the situation hour by hour. So if you were, had been planning to chip in a few bucks for those guys, you had better hurry. As I said back in July. Now, this isn't about whether you agree with VDare.com on immigration. They run Ann Coulter and Pat Buchanan and John Derbyshire. And that may all be a little strong meat for you. Well, you're going to have to man up about this stuff. Because letting the new totalitarians chow down on Ann and Pat doesn't mean the beasts are now sated. Only that they've worked up an appetite for whoever's next, including you. And it certainly includes me. For a while, we were living in Aldous Huxley's brave new world, the sensual pleasures of Katy Perry and Justin Bieber distracting us from noticing what's going on. Soft, beguiling, totalitarian creep. Uh, but we've now transitioned uh, into a move toward the full Orwell, the boot-stamping phase. It's easy to present VDare as the fringe, although the views they represent command the support of over half the American people. It's just that the only two political choices this hideous 150-year-old frozen party system permits are between the open borders left and the Koch brothers' cheap labour right. But even if they were the fringe... As I said many times during my ultimately successful free speech battles in Canada a decade back, that's how the thought police always pitch up. Oh, we're just mopping up a few fringe losers out on the edge of the map. Don't worry about it. No, the, the so-called fringe always moves inward.
and eventually you will find your part of that fringe. Every shriveling of public discourse increases the way public policy issues can only be framed within the left's parameters. If you can no longer object to mass immigration and the 1965 Act that enabled it without being put out of business, what's left to discuss about immigration in any meaningful way? But don't look to the pansies of Conservatism Inc. to save you. When that statue thing started a couple of years back, Rich Lowry of National Review said, well, you know, we Conservatives aren't big on Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee, but you can bet that if they ever come for Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln, we'll be there. Well, last week, Falls Church School District in Virginia announced they'd be renaming Thomas Jefferson Elementary School. San Francisco announced they'd be renaming Abraham Lincoln High School because Lincoln did not show, quote, that black lives ever mattered to him. So where's Rich Lowry? He shrugs and moves on to the next concession. I say again, right now, the butchest guy in the Western world is the presently COVID-stricken Emmanuel Macron. Get well soon, Monsieur le Président, because you may be a globalist, metrosexual, dinky boy, as exquisitely delicate as bone china, but you called this one right back when it started. Je vous le dis très clairement ce soir, mes chers compatriotes. La République n'effacera aucune trace ni aucun nom de son histoire. Elle n'oubliera aucune de ses œuvres. Elle ne déboulonnera pas de statues. If you're not hip to the lingo, Monsieur Macron said, I tell you very clearly tonight, my dear compatriots, the Republic will not erase a single trace or a single name from its history. It will not forget any of its deeds or take down any statue. And what do you know? When you're that absolute, the problem goes away. By contrast, last week, 84 of 100 United States senators voted for a bill that will rename Fort Bragg and all other U.S. bases named for Confederate generals. You do the math. So most of the crackerjack Republican Senate caucus were supposed to be working so hard to save in Georgia cannot man up to be as butch as the French globalist dinky boy. Uh, Margot Rubio... Uh, Jim Inhofe, Rick Scott, Mitch McConnell, you name them, all voted to discard a big chunk of American history. It's not my history. I have no emotional connection uh, to the Civil War. Unlike Mitch McConnell's, my forebears did not fight for the Confederacy or indeed for the Union. But I have no emotional connection to French history either. Uh, All I know is that a nation that discards its past has no future. It's as simple as that. So unless you're prepared to reiterate the line I've used almost all year, unless you're prepared to surrender everything, surrender nothing. Oh, 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 but McConnell! McConnell is the master parliamentarian! Look at all those Trump judges like that trio on the Supreme Court who declined to accord Texas standing in the election fraud case. Ah, yeah, yeah, but right now there are 
Did you know this? There hasn't been a lot of news about it. There are 50 lower-level federal judgeships vacant because the Democrats have used the non-binding Senate custom to prevent the nominees from getting a vote on the Senate floor. Basically, for the nomination to proceed, the judges' home state senators both have to send in a so-called blue slip. So if one of the senators declines to do so, the custom is that the nomination is not heard. Only in the last four years did this ludicrous, obscure tradition become an industrial-scale means of Democrat obstruction. So some of those judicial seats have remained vacant throughout the 45th president's entire term. Why didn't McConnell do something about it? Well, too late. Instead of Trump appointing those 50 judges, Biden will. Speaking of judges... It's Mark Stein's Contempt of Court. Contempt of Court is in session. When you're in court and you're in the witness box and you've taken the oath, uh, usually the first thing you do is state your name for the record and then you spell it for the benefit of the court stenographer. Uh, Sometimes they ask for a little more. I was deposed via Zoom the other week, and after stating my name, I was supposed to give my social security number and said that you guys are out of your tree if you think I'm going to give my social security number out over a Zoom call. And there was a little bit of back and forth on that before I prevailed. Uh, Well, we're all going to have to take a stand now. On Wednesday, the Provincial Court of British Columbia announced that henceforth both counsel and witnesses will have to declare their pronouns and preferred forms of address. Uh, So the example they give when you step into the witness box or you're a, a barrister who rises in court is this. My name is Ms. Jane Lee, spelled L-E-E. I use she, her pronouns. I am the lawyer for Mooks Joe Carter, who uses they, them pronouns. Mooks is a gender-neutral title. The policy was announced by Chief Judge Melissa Gillespie, who sounds like a cis woman, but you never can tell, don't want to presume, don't have a definitive ruling on that. You know, sometimes when I bring this stuff up on Rush, we'll get calls saying, why are you going on about this, Stein? Everyone knows this is a joke. Why don't you get back to talking about the important things, like which is coming first, the Durham report or the rapture? Uh, So while the right was talking about Paul Ryan's tax cut, the left abolished biological sex. And uh, for some reason, the right thinks that in the fullness of time, we will come to appreciate that Paul Ryan's tax cut is of greater historical significance than the abolition of the sexes. And you guys wonder why, for all the checks you've written out to the GOP, you're losing your entire world. I spent a week in a British Columbia courthouse, a fantastically ugly one, the Robson Street Courthouse in Vancouver, where my jokes were on trial for flagrant Islamophobia. 
So I want to say this to our many British Columbia listeners and to others in jurisdictions where this sort of thing is happening. The broken windows theory doesn't just apply to crime. It applies in a greater societal sense, too. The smaller provocations have to be resisted because it is upon them that the larger ones are built. That is why the GOP Senate should not have thrown in the towel on military base names. There is no social consensus on the abolition of the sexes, and to require you to state your pronouns is not an act of sensitivity toward those who are hung up about pronouns, but a state-compelled prostration before a radical redefinition of social norms Uh, with no widespread acceptance. So I am asking all our British Columbia listeners to refuse flat out to give their pronouns in court. And yes, I know, in theory, some woke justice could find you in contempt. But if we all do it, they won't. In that Robson Street courthouse in Vancouver, uh, McLean's was up before a troika of human rights commissars. And when the judge enters the room, you're supposed to stand up. I didn't because these guys were a kangaroo court, and nor did Ezra Levant. It was just the two of us at the beginning of the week. By the end of the week, over half the courtroom was refusing to stand, and the troika of pseudo-judges hated it, but could do nothing about it, because there was such universal rejection of their authority and dignity. There were fans of mine in court and during the breaks they used to bring America alone to be autographed and one day a sheriff's deputy came up and said their lordships and ladyships had told him to tell me not to sign books in the well of the court and as he said that somebody else came up with a book so I signed it and I said breezily to the deputy whoops looks like you might have to arrest me. And I never heard from him or their ladyships again on that point. For the umpteenth time, unless you're willing to surrender everything, surrender nothing. And in the diseased courtrooms of British Columbia, that means every one of you should refuse to announce your pronouns. And if they demand to know your preferred form of address, answer Milord. Escape the quarantine by delving into fantastic fiction chosen and read by Mark Stein himself in Stein's Tales for Our Time. Thrillers, mysteries, science fiction, romance, tales that transcend genre, everything from classics to titles hidden in the upper shelves. Mark Stein Club members can listen to the full catalog of nearly three dozen Tales for Our Time. Hear them all by going to www.steinonline.com tfot. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, born in 1807 in what's now the state of Maine, uh, was the most popular American poet of his day and really one of the first American celebrities. His 70th birthday was a grand national jubilee and he was known around the world. His reputation nosedived in the 20th century and he was mocked by a later poet from Maine, Louis Turco as, quote, minor and derivative and a hack imitator of the English Romantics. I'm not sure I've ever read a word of Mr. Turco's poetry, so I'm not in a position to compare. These words of Longfellow survive because they have been set to music many times, most successfully by Johnny Marks, 
who also wrote Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, A Holly Jolly Christmas and Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree. And Harry Belafonte, Frank Sinatra and many others have made fine records of Mr. Marx's setting of Longfellow. But the musical version dispenses with the middle verses and it is those that place it precisely in its terrible and turbulent time. Longfellow wrote the poem in 1863. He was a widower. Two years earlier, his wife had burned to death when her dress caught fire. And indeed, Longfellow himself suffered permanent burns uh, trying to save her. That's why he wore a beard ever after. The following year, Uh, 1862, his son Charles went off to war with the Union Army without seeking his father's blessing or even telling him he was going. Uh, I have tried hard to resist the temptation of going without your leave, but I cannot any longer, uh, is how Charles put it in a letter. I feel it to be my first duty to do what I can for my country, and I would willingly lay down my life for it if it would be of any good. It almost came to that. The Battle of Mine Run was fought in Virginia over five days at the end of November, beginning of December 1863. It was the umpteenth attempt by the Union Army to destroy Robert E. Lee's forces, and like the others, it failed. Charles was severely wounded in that battle, and his soldiering was over. Three weeks later, on Christmas Day, 1863, his father heard the church bells and wrote this poem. Its refrain comes from the Gospel according to Luke in the King James Version, the words of the angel of the Lord. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Not a lot of that in the America of Christmas 1863. First published in the February 1865 edition of Our Young Folks by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Christmas Bells. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, good will to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, good will to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn, The households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, 
nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. A poem from Me to You by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. We shall see. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Soren Rasmussen, a first weekend founding member of the Mark Stein Club uh, from a lovely part of uh, Denmark, sort of halfway from Copenhagen, heading up uh, toward Elsinore. I was in Denmark five years ago and ten years ago for the anniversaries of the Mohammed cartoons, and I should have been back uh, in Copenhagen this year. No such observances, alas, to my regret, but I will be back. Uh, Soren writes with regards to a bit of music on Tuesday's 100 Years Ago show. Your oblique identification of the Kettleby piece was greatly appreciated. As you were discussing the German loss of their colonies and the music started in the background, I found myself thinking, hang on, that is Albert Kettleby, isn't it? But which piece? And then you referenced the Persians being in the market for an army. Good stuff. And while I'm at it, may I say how I love the 100 Years Ago show. I'll keep listening avidly until I keel over from a corona-infected Coca-Cola or until January 2120, whichever comes first. Wow, that uh, that Danish uh, healthcare system must be absolutely terrific if you're already making plans for January 2120. Well done, Soren. That was indeed Kettleby's splendid light orchestral piece in a Persian market. Ever since using uh, In the Mystic Land of Egypt as the theme music for our very first tale for our time, Conan Doyle's Tragedy of the Korosko, I've been meaning to do a full show on Kettleby, but uh, lawsuits and other piffle have cut into my time. We will do it one day. Uh, Glad to hear you love the 100 Years Ago show. The point, obviously, is in part to refract our own time through their time, Uh, but it's also to get to know better the Great War and its long aftermath, because, as you know, I believe that's where the West's loss of civilizational self-confidence began. The dividing line is August 1914. So Soren and others may be interested to hear that starting in the new year, we'll be breaking out our 100 Years Ago show into a standalone feature and reprising it every month in a Sunday omnibus edition. Uh, And I hope you'll join me for that. A conservative uninterested in history is a contradiction in terms. Uh, So thank you, Soren. And if you are up in uh, Copenhagen uh, over the Christmas season and you run into any of my uh, Danish free press chums, Lars Hedegaard, Katrina Winkleholm, uh, Mary Krarup, a uh, wonderful member of parliament for the Danish People's Party, uh, please wish them a glolul from me. And now, Stein Online presents Mark Stein's Song of the Week. 
If you've been on our Mark Stein cruises and the next one sails this coming October, uh, you'll know that Phelan McAleer is a big part of the fun. He's the guy behind the movie Gosnell and uh, the playlet that Michelle Buckman and I performed live a year or so back based on the texts, the billet doux between Peter Strzok and Lisa Page of the FBI. Uh, last I heard from Phelan was a day or two back when he was live tweeting from the White House men's room. Uh, which I have a vague feeling is illegal because almost everything else you want to do in that building is. Uh, but the time before that that I heard from Phelan, he was writing to nitpick about last week's Song of the Week, which I began with a bit of Boxing Day banter between me and uh, Tony-winning, Oscar-winning lyricists Don Black and Tim Rice. You mentioned Boxing Day, which is the... Um the day after Christmas, in, celebrated in the British Commonwealth, and uh, I think originated is the day you give a box of to your Christmas servants. box to your or to the postman or to yeah. the mm. yes. Now, isn't isn't there a sort of morning after scenario in a Boxing Day song? You know, you had a great Christmas day, and then Boxing Day, she calls you up and returns your gift, and the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> you can never find a pencil when you want one. <laughs> 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 well, it's, I mean, yeah, don't, don't stab me for the piano all at once. <laughs> and after hearing that exchange, Phelim emailed to say, Hold on, isn't Last Christmas a Boxing Day song? As in when? As in George Michael? So yes, that would make Last Christmas a Boxing Day song, or as Phelim's lovely missus Anne McElhenney would say, because Phelim is from the north, as they say in the south of Ireland, and Anne is uh, from the south. So to Anne, uh, it would be a St. Stephen's Day song, because that's what they call it in uh, Dublin and Waterford and whatnot. Last uh, Christmas, I gave you my heart, but on St. Stephen's Day, you gave it away. So George Michael's song is a Boxing Day blockbuster. Maybe Anne and Phelan will explore this further on uh, their own excellent podcast, The Anne and Phelan Scoop. Um, while we're on the subject, though, of Tim Rice's cameo appearance last week... Arunas Barkas, I hope I've pronounced that right. It's uh, it's Baltic, I believe. Lithuanian, I think. Anyway, Arunas writes, Hi, Mark. Your Song of the Week columns are one of the highlights of my week. They not only enhance my appreciation of songs I'm familiar with, but also introduce me to songs that are added to my personal list of songs to listen to. I was wondering if you've written anything about a Christmas song that was part of the movie The Odessa File, Christmas Dream. 
It has become one of my favourite Christmas songs, and my mother, who is 95, loves to listen to it. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Cheers, Arunas Barkas. Merry Christmas to you too, Arunas. I don't know whether I've ever written about it, but I did chat about it a few years ago uh, with the fellow who wrote it, the aforementioned Tim Rice. Now, Tim... Uh, for a uh, guy who's always been more of a rock and roll fan, you wound up writing a uh, Christmas song for Perry Como with Andrew Lloyd Webber. How did that happen? Well, Andrew was invited fairly fairly early on in, in our career, and his career. He was invited by Ronald Neem, the great film director, who's still going strong um, as we speak. He's 94, 95. I had lunch with him in, in Los Angeles not that long ago. And um, he asked Andrew to write the score for the Odessa file, Freddie Forsyth's book. And there was a uh, one song was required, and the Odessa file was set in 1963, the year of President Kennedy's assassination. And we were asked to write a song, or Andrew was asked to write a song, and he asked me to write the words um, for a Christmassy song that that might have been a hit in '63. Um, I think nowadays a I mean, perhaps the average film director would have used an actual hit of the time, but um, in fact, they almost did because we more or less rewrote "Wooden Heart" by Elvis Presley. <laughs> so, so the <laughs> even, remark, e- even even to the extent of having a German choir of children in it. Can you see? I love you. Please don't break my heart in two. That's not hard to do, cause I don't. The whole the whole thing always sounds like wooden hearts. It is. It, it is extremely close to wooden hearts. And and that was intentional, was it? Well, I, I never like to ask. I mean, I was always terribly polite when working with Andrew. I didn't like to say things like, "Isn't this a bit close to wooden heart?" <laughs> um, I just thought, well, you know, it's it's quite catchy. Um, and I don't think it was one of my greatest lyrics. It had one or two quite nice lines in it. But the first line was, "Watch me now, here I go. All I need's a little snow." Right. And this was interpreted in uh, some quarters as, as being a, a call for cocaine, which was not not my thought at all. And but also did, did in 1963, that... it would, wouldn't have been current at all. So, But even with that street cred that the lyric got in certain quarters, it wasn't a massive hit. Right, even Perry Como singing drug songs, that, <laughs> that combination. Yeah. But I was thrilled, I really was, to have Perry Como sing one of my songs. I mean, right. that, was, that was just fantastic. <laughs> Watch me now, here I go, all I need's a little snow Starts me off, sets the theme, helps me dream my Christmas dream Every year I dream it, hoping things will change And into the crying, the shouting, the dying And I hope you will dream it too it's Christmas. Remember, we've got to remember. But you, so you, uh, you, as you say, there's a German chorus that's sort of halfway in the middle of that. Now, I know years ago, you had a commission to write a song for Sasha Distel, and uh, subsequently discovered you were meant to turn it in in French, and so wrote it in French. Did you write the uh, the German? Lyrics? No, tragically, my German wasn't wasn't up to it. The um, English stuff is mine. Halfway through, a German gang of lederhosen-clad nippers comes in and, <laughs> and, and warbles in German, and they do it very well. But they could be singing, you know, the telephone director. <laughs> 
lederhosen and plaid nippers. I believe there's now a Grammy category for that. Anyway, Tim's right. Perry Como's record is very nice. Uh, so here it is, uh, just for Arunas Barkas and his mum. Uh, and if you've never seen or read The Odessa File, bear in mind that, as Tim mentioned, it's set in 1963 when Christmas came just a month after the Kennedy assassination. Watch me now, here I go, all I need's a little snow. Starts me off, sets the theme, helps me dream my Christmas dream. Every year I dream it, hoping things will change. And into the crying, the shouting, the dying. And I hope you will dream it too. It's Christmas, remember, we've got to remember So light the light, I'm home tonight I need you to warn me, to calm me, to love me To help me to dream my Christmas dream Crazy things said and done every single day but one Every night should I believe be the same as Christmas Eve Night should all be silent, day should all slow down And into the hurry, the noise and the worry And I hope you believe that too It's Christmas, remember, there's no one remember The whole world needs a Christmas To calm us, to love us, to help us to dream our Christmas dream. singing Christmas Dream by Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber with German words by the versatile Austrian Andre Heller. And Tim was quite right when he said it wasn't that big a hit. It got to number 92 on the Billboard Hot 100 at Christmas 1974. But it has lingered and struck a chord with Arunas and his mum and many others. We should probably just have turned over this entire Yuletide season to Tim and his seasonal faves. But then again, he too 
has his own excellent podcast, who doesn't these days, called Get Onto My Cloud. Get Onto My Cloud, uh, which includes a wonderful opening episode in which Tim talks about what's on his mantelpiece. And I know you're probably saying, oh, come on, Stein, even you haven't subjected us to a show about stuff you found at the back of your bathroom cabinet. Uh, But Tim has a more interesting mantelpiece than most, and you will enjoy that episode. That will do it for today's show. On Saturday, we'll be launching our annual Christmas Tales for Our Time. Hope you'll join me for that. And if you go to our Tales for Our Time homepage, you can see our entire Christmas catalogue. Dickens, Conan Doyle, O. Henry, L.M. Montgomery, Louisa May, Allcut, Jack London, and uh, even me. Do check that out and uh, join me Saturday evening. Happy Hanukkah and a blessed Advent season, according to taste. And whichever way you tilt, please keep in your prayers our dear friends Kathy Shadle and Rush Limbaugh, both of whom are having a rough time of it. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.